Well, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9 is where we will be. And I also want to bring to your attention a couple of items that are in your bulletin today, just so you don't miss them. Uh, One is that here in about a month, we will be uh, starting a membership class on Sunday evenings, and that will take place digitally. We will meet digitally over Zoom. We have some people that it will be too much to ask for them to drive back here on a Sunday evening, and so it would just be easier to do it over Zoom and to record uh, those sessions too for people who maybe miss one and need to catch up. So that will happen at the end of September. Uh, There will be more details coming on that, but if you have any questions for me, just uh, let me know. I'd love to answer your questions. Also, this week, we do not have a Wednesday night service. It is a fifth Sunday, or fifth Wednesday, rather, and we uh, don't have Wednesday night meetings on fifth Wednesdays just as a means of giving us a a free week to do something else, have people over in your house or uh, go out and do some evangelism, whatever you want to do with that week. If you need extra rest, take extra rest, whatever the case may be, but there will be no Wednesday service this week. And then... uh, Tonight, we have a game night at 5.30 right here at the building, so if you're able to uh, come back with your whole family and just have fun with us, that'd be great. We'll have some hot dogs and brats, but just bring a side to share. That's all we ask. Uh, We'll have a good time together and uh, enjoy one another. And another announcement that's not in your bulletin. There's a little girl in here who's five years old today. Who's that five-year-old? Ah, yeah. Yeah, and it's also Joe's birthday. Joe can't be here. She's still a little under the weather. So happy birthday, Joe, and happy birthday, Ada. Uh, It's a a very exciting day at my house. So, well, let's uh, consider what the Lord has for us today as we go to an interesting passage, Joshua chapter 9. It's very, very interesting. Uh, It's a, a unique scenario, but it will counsel us in our life choices, I trust. Today, we will get some counseling from the Word of God as we consider its application to our lives today. Before we get into reading what's there, let's pray together. Father, again, we want to express that we are so, so thankful. This life is because of You, and this life is all for You. All that we are is from You and for You. And God, we ask that today as we examine this account of the Israelites from long ago, that You would instruct us and teach us and make application in our hearts to our own lives, that we would be changed by Your Word today, and that we would serve You more faithfully and bring honor to Your name by the way that we live and represent You in the world. Lord, we ask together that as I lead us in in this consideration this morning, that I wouldn't get in the way of Your Word, but that You would help me to speak accurately and to speak rightly, that all of Your people would understand and apply what it is you have for us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are rejoining Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. Last week we saw their conquest of Ai, but there are more cities, there are more nations to dispossess. And at the point we we left them on, they were on a mountaintop, both metaphorically and literally. Last week we ended the sermon, and they were standing there between Mounts Ebal and Gerizim, and they were having a worship service, looking to the law of God, considering what God had told previous generations that still had binding influence on them. Yet they 
were just coming off of a victory, and they were, of course, you can imagine, feeling great about what the Lord had just done in giving them the promised victory over Ai. But this great conquest of the land in front of them, this great promised victory that God gave them for the entire land, it was not to be without its challenges. It was not to be without its complications. Because, you know, just one of us on our own as a fallen human being is complicated. You get a bunch of humans together, it gets more and more complicated, doesn't it? And we're going to see here some complications that are brought about by fallen man. Let's look at the first two verses of Joshua chapter 1. Remember, they're on the mountaintop, and this is what's going on behind the scenes. Joshua 9.1, it says, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, when they heard of it, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and Israel. So this is what's brewing now behind the scenes. This is one more time where the author's giving us that dramatic irony, informing us of something going on that the characters in the story aren't fully aware of. The kings are gathering together as one. You've heard that expression before, I'm sure, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so now these nations dwelling in Canaan, they're becoming friends because they have a common enemy in the Israelites, and we'll really get into that in the next chapter. But let's start considering this week, how will the Israelites, Joshua and those following him, how will they deal with other people when all these people are out to get them or deceive them? And I want us to remember 1 Corinthians 10.6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that these events that happened long ago They are recorded as examples for our sake. And you know what he goes on to say? That you shouldn't do the same things. (laughs) Not that we should imitate them in all that they did. Certainly there are good examples that we should follow. But so much of what is recorded is Israel doing the wrong, sinful, dumb, foolish thing over and over and over again. And today is a prime example of that. We're going to consider this example from Israel's history that we may not repeat the same error that we might learn from their folly. And before we examine the rest of chapter 9, I want to point out a couple of legal basics, a moral point and a specific instruction to Israel that we have to understand first before we get into the details of what happened in chapter 9. So turn with me back two books to the book of Numbers. This is the fourth book of your Bible, Numbers chapter 30. And I want us to get this point in our minds as we consider what's happening in Joshua chapter 9. Numbers chapter 30, the first two verses, it says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord... Or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So Israel is here instructed to say what they mean and mean what they say. 
You ever been told to do that in your life? Say what you mean and mean what you say? Well, here it was a part of God's law. It was officially encoded as a way to live for Israel. God, of course, is truth. And He expects His people to reflect truth in all that they do. In their actions and in their character, God expects His people to reflect His nature. Saying what you mean and meaning what you say and fulfilling your commitments That really is a high and holy calling, isn't it? That's a high and holy calling that is fit for a set-apart people. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs us to go even higher than this in the way that we live. He says that you've heard to keep your oaths. Well, I tell you, just don't even worry about oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus calls us in all that we do to mean what we say, to say what we mean, and to keep our word. Christians are not to be hypocrites who doublespeak. Christians are not to be deceivers. To reflect properly the nature and character of God as children of light, we are to reflect the truth in the way that we live. Another passage I want to point out to you is Deuteronomy 7. So it's the book between Numbers and Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I want to give you this second point from the law that we have to have in mind before we get into Joshua 9 this morning. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6. This is Moses speaking to the parents of those that we find in the book of Joshua. Deuteronomy 7, 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn down their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, I misspoke a moment ago. This is actually... Uh, God speaking through Moses to that generation that entered the promised land. Though there is a similar command to their parents all the way back in Exodus 34, you could make a note that Exodus 34 essentially says the same thing that we find here in Deuteronomy 7. But very clearly, Israel was to drive out all the national entities within the land of Canaan. This land that God was giving them had seven nations that were greater and stronger than Israel. And he's very clear here in this passage Do not make a covenant with any of them. Utterly destroy them. Now, there were, of course, some families that Israel picked up as proselytes. We read about Rahab earlier in the book of Joshua. Last week in chapter 8, we finished off by uh, noting that there were strangers among them in Israel. There were strangers that were worshiping with them on Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. However, they were to, to destroy all nations. All national entities were, be, were to be destroyed. And God gives a reason. He doesn't leave us as to wondering why this is the case. Did you catch it in Deuteronomy 7? 
The reason that, God's, that God gives is because God's desire was to see generational faithfulness in Israel. His desire was to see true covenant worship in Israel. And if they were to make a covenant, if they were to coexist with these other nations, what's going to happen is they're going to intermarry. They're going to mix. They're going to mingle. There's going to be intermarriage leading to false worship. Even if the parents, the ones getting married to one another, even if they weren't false worshiping, surely in the next generation or the one after, there was going to be false worship in Israel. And God takes this very seriously because God takes worship and devotion very seriously. God's people are the called out ones, aren't they? God's people are to be called out from the world, not to return to the world. God's people are to be called out from the world to live apart from the world, to have separation from the world. Not in such a way that we denounce all things that are modern beyond the first century or something like that. Not in such a way that it's just merely external. Now, there are some externals that are affected, but it's not merely external. God has called His people out that they would be spiritually separate, that they would be totally aware spiritually of what's going on and not join in with darkness. In the New Testament, God's people are called saints. That means holy ones. God's people are holy ones. Now, it's a position that's given to us where in God's sight, from the moment of belief, because we are in Jesus Christ, we are counted as holy from that point forward forever. We are holy ones. And yet, as we see so clearly in books like 1 Corinthians, we are to live up to that calling. And that takes work, doesn't it? That takes obedience. That takes a lot of decisions being made day by day, all through the day, to be set apart. And Paul asks this question in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer, of course, is none. And this is the same idea that's being communicated to Israel. What fellowship do you have with these nations that you are going to dispossess? The answer is none. The nations are to be driven out. That's Israel's mission. Their mission was not to covenant with the nations they were driving out, but to destroy the nations. And now, with these two points in mind, that they are to keep their vows and that they are not to make covenants with those nations... We can rejoin the Israelites in Joshua chapter 9, and I want us to consider what it is they've done wrong here. I'll read verses 3 to 13. I'm going to read a pretty big chunk, and I want you to look for these things. Making a vow, keeping your word, not making covenants with the Canaanite nations. Joshua chapter 9, verse 3, it says, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled." They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, 
We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? (laughs) I love that question. Verse 9, they said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of Yahweh your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This is our bread. Or this, our bread, was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which we filled were new, and behold, they are torn. And these, our clothes and our sandals, are worn out because of the very long journey. Wow. The Hivites here are being pretty cunning, aren't they? They're being deceptive. Notice that the text does call them Hivites. Gibeon is a city, and the region apparently was uh, a place where there were multiple people called the Hivites. Those are the ones mentioned alongside the others in Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 34 that Israel was not to make a covenant with. Don't make a covenant with the Hivites. Well, here are the Hivites asking for a covenant. Remember, Jesus taught us to be as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Well, here you've got some Gibeonites who are being as shrewd as serpents and as evil as serpents. You notice in verse 3, it says, this is the knowledge that the author is giving the reader, that the Gibeonites had heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. Now, where's Jericho and where's Ai? That's within the land of Canaan. That's on the, this side of the Jordan where they are, right? But drop down to verse 9. Notice what they said to Joshua. They didn't say that we heard what you did in Jericho and Ai because that would give it away that they live close. Instead, they say, we have heard what God did in Egypt. They're being deceptive here, aren't they? They're being quite cunning in their rebellion. They came to Joshua seemingly saying all the right things. From man's perspective, looking at this situation, well, it seems like Joshua would do the right thing to take them in, right? They came from a far country. They had evidence after all. And did you notice that they're saying, we've heard what your God has done. Perhaps that could be taken as a profession of faith. It's hard to tell the difference between faith and flattery, one commentator says, and that's certainly the case here. Joshua truly lacked discernment. They said, of course, they came from that faraway place, perhaps knowing that the Israelites were allowed to make covenants with those in faraway places. You can just jot down as a reference Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 to 18. In God's law, He made a provision for making covenants with faraway nations, but nations that were in the land of Canaan. They were not allowed to do such a thing. It was like one of those demonstrations by door-to-door salesmen. You ever have somebody come by trying to sell you a vacuum? And, you know, here it is. They bring their bowling ball with with them, and it's like, it can hold up a bowling ball, you know? And everybody sits back and, ooh, ah, that's amazing. Perhaps some of you have bought that vacuum, okay? Uh, Maybe it is a good vacuum. But here we have this demonstration of, of why you should buy in. The Gibeonites are saying, buy what we're selling, and look, here's our crumbly bread. 
And look at these sandals. Wow. Our crocs are really falling apart. Wow. Well, they were deceiving. They were lying. And I've already shared my opinion that they were being as evil as serpents. But some of you might wonder, perhaps there was a nugget of genuine faith here like Rahab. In fact, this week I read from a couple of respected resources, people saying that this was a conversion of the Gibeonites, that just like Rahab, they were having a conversion experience here. Does that even matter? Well, I think it does. I think it does. And, and this was not like Rahab with the spies. This wasn't even like Jonah and the Ninevites. There's something else happening here. And I want to just take a moment and dwell on this because I do think it's important. When we consider the account of Rahab and her interaction with the spies, Rahab truly did profess faith. Do you remember when she said, Yahweh is God in heaven and on earth? That was an ownership statement. She wasn't saying that this is something that other people believe, but she's saying that she believed that. She made a true profession of faith. Also consider that Rahab didn't seek to preserve her sinful city, Jericho. She only sought to preserve her believing household. She didn't say to the spies, don't destroy this beautiful city. She didn't, she didn't try to construe the situation to preserve wicked Jericho. But she professed faith and her believing household needed preservation from the coming destruction. Also consider how the Gibeonites here, they're acting out of fear. Rahab was acting out of faith and the Gibeonites are acting out of fear. They just don't want to get crushed. It doesn't take a convert to realize that the Gibeonites are in the path of God's wrath. They could see it, even in their fallen state. And they acted out of fear, not out of faith. They lied to Israel, whereas Rahab lied for Israel. Now, Rahab shouldn't have lied, and we talked about that a few chapters ago. But she lied for the sake of God's people. And these Gibeonites are lying to God's people, deceiving the people of God. And Israel could have dealt with them rightly. Joshua could have dealt with them rightly. But they became a prey to themselves instead. Let's pick back up in the narrative in verse 14. It says, So the men of Israel bought what they were selling, right? They took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. The foolish, foolish Israelites. They were duped. Hook, line, and sinker. They bought the vacuum for four easy payments of whatever. <laughs> well, this has a much longer payment record as you examine the Old Testament text. They examined the elements, it says in verse 14. They examined the bread. They took the clothes and the wineskins and they examined those as though the physical was all that there was to consider. They took these physical items from the Gibeonites and they trusted their own eyes and they trusted their own reasoning. You see how quickly it is for us to subconsciously just revert back to humanism? Humanism is the belief that, that we humans together, using our own rationality, using our own senses and reasoning, using our own thoughts, 
that we can promote the betterment of everything in the world apart from the supernatural. And that's what's going on here. Now, it's subconscious. I don't think that the Israelites were doing this against God in their hearts explicitly, but yet they're doing it, aren't they? Here they are just reverting back to humanism. Joshua led by poor example here. Joshua believed them. Joshua made peace with them. Joshua entered into a covenant with them. They made an oath. And the text explicitly says what the problem is in verse 14. They did not ask for God's counsel. They didn't ask for the counsel of the Lord. That word for counsel in the Hebrew is the word peh, P-E-H, peh. It's a little word you can memorize this week, isn't it? And what that word means is literally mouth. They did not ask for the mouth of the Lord, the word of the Lord. They didn't go to Him for His counsel in any sense. And this is especially tragic because God had set this up for Joshua in such a way that he could get discernment directly from God and make better decisions. I want to read to you from Numbers 27. This is when Joshua was shown to be Israel's next leader after Moses. Numbers 27, starting in verse 18. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Now catch this, verse 21. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Eleazar was there in Israel. Joshua had a priest to go to. Joshua was able to consult with God and get direct counsel from God, from Yahweh, the God of Israel, by going to this priest. And yet, they didn't seek the mouth of God. Joshua and the leaders ignored the prescribed means of God's counsel. They ignored the prescribed means that God had prescribed for making wise choices. Any of you ever been there? Ignoring the avenues that God has set up to make wise choices in life and then making a foolish decision? and living with the consequences. And just think about this. Two chapters ago, chapter 7, they went through the whole ordeal with Achan. Remember the first time they tried to take the city of Ai, they couldn't do it? And 36 men died? And it all happened because Achan had sinned secretly, and he was covering and hiding his sin. Well, how on earth did all that get taken care of? They found out that there was a sin problem, because God told them. They found out that it was Achan because God set up this process in front of all of Israel to point out it was Achan. And they took care of the problem by God's command and what they were to do to put to death Achan and all that he had. This whole process with Achan was entirely guided by Yahweh. And here, they ignored God's prescribed means for making wise choices. You see, even, even when we're just 
coming off the heels of an amazing work of God in our lives, how quickly it is to just go right back to living life as though He's not there and to make choices and decisions on our own apart from His counsel. How often our life choices seem obvious and they seem just so innocent. And yet, how often they're neither one of those things. What seems so obvious to us is actually quite spiritually complicated in many cases. Well, Gibeon was just 19 miles away from where Israel was. They were at Gilgal at this time, and less than 20 miles away was Gibeon. So after making this covenant, after making this oath, it wasn't going to take long for Joshua and the leaders to realize, whoops. That's what happens in verse 16. It came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to the cities, their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shepirah and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. Israel could not go back on their promise after discovering this. Remember Numbers 30, verses 1 and 2? You make an oath, you make a binding obligation, you have to keep your word. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. (laughs) You think? Verse 19, but all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, so that the wrath, so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. The leaders said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Well, because of their oath, because of the covenant, they were stuck. The Israelites were now stuck. And not just for a while, not just for one generation, they were stuck now for the rest of time. They made an oath. They entered into a covenant. And to go back on their word would be to incur the wrath of God. I want to share with you one more verse. I'll read it for you. It's from Leviticus 19. Look at what God says about going back on your word. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Swearing falsely is to profane God's very name. And that's what's at stake when it comes to keeping our commitments. That's what's at stake when it comes to letting our yes be yes and our no be no. When we go back on our word, that reflects directly back on God, doesn't it? And it profanes God's name. It's taking His name in vain because you're doing something contrary to His nature when you've been called to promote holiness. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says, Naturally, we Christians in the West have a difficult time understanding why Israel sticks to this oath. And then he rebukes us here. That is because we have such a low view of the given word and such a flimsy concern for truth. How often that's true, isn't it? Well, under Saul's reign, later on, King Saul comes along in Israel. And if you're familiar with uh, the stories of Saul and David, 
you'll know that Israel did go back on their word against the Gibeonites. In 2 Samuel 21, it's just mentioned that Saul killed some of the Gibeonites. And do you know what the Lord did to Israel? They had a three-year drought. They did incur the wrath of God in the form of discipline. His anger did kindle against them. And they had a three-year drought because they went back on this word generations later. It's so serious that we let our yes be yes and our no be no. This was a real mess for Israel, wasn't it? A real mess that they were in. And there's a lesson for us here, I think. I think there's a pretty obvious lesson just sitting right on top of the text here. We often struggle because we are living with the consequences of our own folly, aren't we? So often we struggle because our foolish decisions have consequences. God and His wisdom are available to us completely, but I would say very few of us frequently take Him up on it. For some of us, it may be rare that we take Him up on His wisdom. Another great quote from Dale Ralph Davis, I just had to share this with you. He says, It was not that Joshua and the elders did not ask the right questions. They were suspicious at just the right points. It was not that they were sloppy in their investigation, but that they were alone in their decision. It wasn't that they didn't think, but that they didn't pray. That's a good word. Sometimes we make rash commitments, don't we? Sometimes we make rash decisions. And there may be long-term consequences to those very quick decisions. Those decisions that are made on our own, apart from the counsel of the Lord, apart from prayer, apart from seeing what Scripture has to say, apart from going to God's people in the church, the gifts that God has given us that we live together as a community and ignoring all of that counsel to make our own decisions. So often, there will be long-term consequences. Many people wonder why they struggle. And sadly, many people never learn. And they return again and again to their own folly. Many of them want to escape their consequences. Many of them are looking for an out. How can I get away from these consequences? But notice that it's not very often that God gives us an out. It's not very often that God just totally erases the consequences of our decisions. So often, He just leaves us in those consequences. And we are to learn in the middle of those consequences. He didn't give Israel an out with this, did He? You could fathom a scenario where if you were in Joshua's place, you might go to God and say, Oh, Lord, I messed up. Can we reverse this? Can we go back? Can you somehow just take out all the Gibeonites and they're all gone just by your act? We won't do it. Can you do it? And just spare us from having to live with them? Oh, didn't happen, did it? They are to live with their consequences and hopefully learn to seek the counsel of the Lord. And the Gibeonites had to live with their consequences as well. The Gibeonites became servants. They weren't sons in Israel. They were slaves in Israel. Let's finish the chapter, 22 to the end. It says, Then Joshua called for the Gibeonites and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, when you are living within our land? 
Now therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. Well, we've been seeing lots and lots of memorials in the book of Joshua, and now we have living, breathing, walking, talking memorials in the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites remained in Israel as a living memorial. Every time the Israelites would see the Gibeonites or interact with the Gibeonites and their children would ask, why are they in with us? It would have to be re-explained over and over and over again how the Gibeonites got there because Joshua and the leaders did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And the Gibeonites likely felt like objects of derision throughout all generations in Israel. They were considered slaves, not sons. Now, that's all pretty bad news, isn't it? That's all pretty bleak and depressing. But there is some good news in this. There's good news in it. Because our God, He redeems all sorts of messed up situations, doesn't He? You're a messed up situation, aren't you? <laughs> and, and God redeems us in Christ. And God's able to work through our consequences, though He doesn't remove our consequences so many times. He works in our consequences and even redeems our consequences. You notice here at the end of the passage I just read, it says that the Gibeonites served at the altar. Do you think they learned something about God and about faith as they continuously served at the altar? I'm sure they did. As the Gibeonites went on generation to generation, they experienced all sorts of things. They saw the hand of God. In the very next chapter, we're going to read about an amazing miracle and that miracle happened in part to preserve the Gibeonites. God was faithful to them in preserving their lives. Later on in David's time, the tabernacle was pitched, and the tabernacle was pitched in Gibeon. Of all the cities, it was pitched in Gibeon. Fast forward all the way to after the Babylonian exile, when the Israelites are coming back to Jerusalem, who's right next to Nehemiah building the wall? Some Gibeonites. And so God is not done with people. As long as there's breath in your lungs, God is not done with you. Whether you're thinking of yourself, who you've done something wrong, or you're thinking of someone else, maybe you've partnered with somebody else and you're dealing with those long-term consequences. Well, as long as there is breath in the lungs, God is at work in that person's life in some way. And as long as you were in that person's life, there's an effect that you can have on that person by appealing to God and caring for that person as an image bearer, by serving that person and loving that person with the love of Jesus Christ. Well, I titled this sermon, Learning from Folly, and I want to give us three lessons as we finish up, three things we can learn from Israel's folly in this passage. 
First, it has to do with judging others, the lesson of judging others. Remember, Israel judged wrongly because they were looking at mere externals. They were looking at the bread. They were looking at the wineskins. They were looking at the clothes. Well, let us not be taken with flattery. Let us not be taken with sleight of hand magic. Let us not be taken with deception. But let's examine with the eyes of God. We so often hear in our culture that we are not to judge. You have to judge. You have to judge in this life. You interact with so many people. And let me tell you, if you haven't found out yet, not all of them are honest. Not all of them are kind. And so, as a Christian, you've been given the mind of Christ. You've been given the Spirit of God. You've been given a commission to pursue truth. And though you will never become omniscient, never know all things, you're never going to be the all-wise in all of your judgments, you can still look for spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom, can't you? You can still consider that there's more going on than meets the eye. If anybody's going to believe that, let it be a Christian. There's more that goes on in this life than meets the eye. It's the atheist or the naturalist or the humanist that says, all that there is is what I can see with a telescope or put under a microscope. That's just not true. We are to have spiritual discernment in this life as it's given to us by God. The second lesson we can learn, of course, is Israel's obvious error in this passage, that we are to inquire of the Lord. We are to ask for God's counsel. How often should we do that? How frequently, with how many decisions throughout each and every day, should you stop and ask for God's counsel? Well, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to, and there's an asterisk next to it, and I'm going to talk about it more, okay? Don't be afraid to do it more. Okay? That's the first thing I'm going to say. Don't be afraid to do it more. Whether you have this false notion in your head that, well, God's got so much going on, He doesn't want to hear from me. <laughs> Reject that thought, okay? God, God only wants me to come to Him with the big problems. Get that out of your mind. You think God can handle big and small problems all across the world at the same time? If you don't, you've got a tiny God. We have a big God who can handle all of that, okay? So the first thing I want to say is don't be afraid of more. Yet there is a ditch that you could fall into, the ditch of scrupulosity, where just every little thing you have to know, like maybe later today you'll say to somebody, hey, can you help me move these chairs? And that person says, well, let me pray about it. Now that is the definition of being so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, right? That person just kind of has a wrong view of what life is. I mean, so often I, I've heard people uh, just talk about the simplest opportunities where they can serve that are just pretty basic and simple. Well, I have to pray about it almost as a cop-out because you never hear from that person again. Notice no one ever comes back and says, God said no. <laughs> just uh, earlier this week, I was... Uh, texting Andy a Spotify link, and I said, do you have Spotify on your phone? And he said he just deleted it the day before. And I said, you should have prayed about it, man. <laughs> well, that's not what we're encouraging here today, okay? But we do recognize that the all-wise, omniscient God has made Himself available to us, hasn't He? And what has He promised in James chapter 1? He's promised to give wisdom liberally, to give generously, without reproach, that if we ask of Him in faith, His promise is that He will give you wisdom. 
especially with the big decisions of life. Please, Christian, don't go about making decisions about who you'll marry, where you'll live, you know, all these really massive choices in life, what you'll do for a career, without getting counsel. You were not saved to be a lone ranger. God didn't put you in a family so that you could ignore your family. God has put you in the body of Christ so that we have each other to bounce ideas off of and to to go to Him in prayer and see how He leads through His people and through His Word. And then finally, the third lesson. We talked about judging others, inquiring of the Lord. Thirdly, committing to our Word. We learn a lesson here about committing to our Word, don't we? Again, consider the character of God. In Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. Has God not said and will he not do it? This is the constancy of God. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's constant. He doesn't change his mind. And praise God, he doesn't change his mind about us, does he? He doesn't abandon us, but he sticks with us in the covenant he made with us. In our covenant relationship with God, we see His enduring faithfulness, not just to us, but to His Word. That He says you are mine. That He says you have an inheritance. There's a hope laid up for you. He doesn't go back on any of that. He never puts that in jeopardy. He never makes makes it a condition. But He has made a covenant commitment to us that He absolutely will keep. He keeps His Word to all people. He's promised us eternal life through the gospel, and our lives should reflect that kind of faithful commitment to what we say and to what we do. I want to close with 1 John chapter 5, first just reading verse 13. John says he wrote this letter to those believers in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see the certainty there? that you may know. How can we know that we have eternal life? Because God said it. And God does not go back on His Word, does He? God does not go back on a covenant commitment. And now look at what He says in verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. In verse 15, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. In light of the reality that God has given you a promise, that God has made an oath with you, and He will keep His word, how then are you to live? Reflecting His character, living out truth, reflecting truth by keeping your word to your fellow man, and by going to Him for counsel. We know that we have eternal life, therefore... Let's go to him because he hears us. You've seen the, the Ken Garf billboards, right? All, they're always hearing us. <laughs> and you know that Amazon is always hearing you, right? <laughs> well, even more than that, God always hears us. And we can take all of our requests to him, and we have the certainty that we have these requests from God when we ask him according to his will when we ask for wisdom, when we ask for counsel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this example that you've preserved for us, that we could learn from it, and that our lives might be changed by it. Help us, by your Spirit, to be people of truth, 
to be people of integrity, to be people who serve you well with this one life you've given us to live. And we ask for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.